Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I heard a story about an old man. Um, in fact, he was so old that it was at the end of his life and he was very ill. He was uh, ready to, to die. And he was not only an old man, he was not only a dying man, but he was a very, very wealthy man. He got to thinking about things and he decided that he wanted to have a lot of cash in his coffin when he died. Somehow he knew that um, he couldn't spend it, but there was something about the thought of taking a lot of his money with him that made him feel good about himself. And he was highly engaged at this point with three different important people in his life. One was his pastor, the other was his doctor, and the other was his attorney. He gathered them together and he gave them each um, $100,000. He said to them, he said, um, now when I die, I want each of you to make sure you put this $100,000 in cash in my, this money in my casket. They agreed and they agreed to do all they could to help him and to grant him his wish. And the day came when he passed away, they had his funeral and one at a time the pastor went by the casket and he He put an envelope in the casket, so did the doctor, so did the attorney. They put envelopes in his casket, and they actually were riding together in the limousine on their way home from the cemetery later, and the pastor couldn't bear it anymore, and he began to weep, began to sob. They said, what's the matter? He said, I I just have to admit, he said, said, I only put $90,000 in the casket. He said, we've had this Sunday school project going for the missionaries, and I kept $10,000, and I gave it to that. I, I'm wrong, but I put 90000 in the casket. The doctor said, well, since this is a time for confession, let me say, I only put $10,000 in the cash. He said, I've just been looking at a new boat for 90000 and I only put 10000 in the casket. The attorney was shocked. He was a guest. He said, I'm shocked. I'm appalled. He said, I want you to know in my envelope was a personal check for all $100,000. He said, isn't it funny how we think about money? I don't know what money does for you or to you or where you are financially today. What I find interesting is that the Bible has very practical and helpful insight on money. If you're new to us, you need to know that we've actually been doing a topical study here from our pulpits, our pulpit on Sunday mornings. We are in the book of Proverbs. If you take your Bible and you kind of split it down the middle, it'll probably open in the book of Psalms. Uh, If you turn to your right just a little bit, it's the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is a unique book in that it was never intended to be read from beginning to end in one sitting. It is is a, 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 a gathering. It is It is a compilation of the sayings of the wise, largely the sayings of Solomon, King Solomon from Israel, the son of David, who it's helpful for us to remind ourselves was the wisest man that ever lived. When David was going to die, you'll recall, and Solomon was ready to take the kingdom, God asked him, what is it that I can give you? And Solomon, you remember, in his youth and in his inexperience, felt overwhelmed at taking on the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people. And remember, he said, he said to God, I'm just a child. I don't even know how to turn the doorknobs on this place. And so he said, please give me wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. God was so pleased with the humility of his heart in asking for wisdom when he could have asked for whatever he wanted Human nature would have been to ask for wealth, wouldn't it? And so God said to Solomon, not only will I give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth. And so the Bible tells us that Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived from before him or ever lived after him. It is also safe to say that he is likely the wealthiest man that ever lived from before him or after him. It is absolutely astounding the amount of wealth that Solomon accrued in his lifetime. You'll recall that Solomon started out well a God-fearing man, but because of his love for money, because of his love for, for women, and because he allowed his many wives to turn his heart away from God, he became an idolater and he actually worshiped foreign pagan gods and not the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. It's interesting this morning as we study, we 
find ourselves uh, addressing the topic of financial stability. Financial stability. Proverbs is just filled with wisdom on such a broad range of topics. Last week, you'll recall, we talked about personal integrity. This week, financial stability. If you have your notes nearby, I want us to, to take a few minutes, and I want us to lay a little bit of a foundation for our study today. We're going to end up concluding uh, the final section of our message doing some research in the book of Proverbs, helping ourselves understand why we think the way we think and why we do what we do when it comes to money. I want you to know, though, as we begin this morning, that this is a really serious topic. It's a really serious topic. The Bible actually has a tremendous amount of material on money, materialism, things, stuff. Most of us do not need convinced how important this is in our own lives. We think about it a lot. We get out of bed early and we go to work to get money, to buy things, to live. Money, things, stuff. It dominates our lives, actually. And I knew as I prepared my message that it was going to be difficult to know what not to say because there's that much material. So let's just lay a little foundation in our thinking here. Roman number one in your notes, if you have them handy. I just want us to realize how serious this topic really is. It's not just something to bump into and not pay attention to. For example, I don't know if you realize that of all the parables that our Lord taught in the Gospels, 16 of his 38 parables speak about how to handle money and things. 16 out of 38 parables. Now, that's, that's less than half, but that's a significant amount of material. All about money and things. Secondly, I want you to see that our Lord taught more about stewardship of earthly treasure than he did about, listen to this, Christ taught in his earthly ministry more about the stewardship of money and things than he did about heaven and hell combined. More material in our Lord's teaching about this topic than heaven and hell combined. Thirdly, I want you to see that the entire Bible contains more than 2,000 references to wealth and property. More than 2,000 references in Scripture about wealth, money, property, stuff. That is twice as many as the total references to faith and prayer. Isn't that interesting? I think our Lord knows. I mean, I know that our Lord knows. But he knows how we tick, doesn't he? He knows what drives us. He knows what gets our attention. It's also interesting that what a barometer money and stuff and things are in our spiritual life. You can tell a lot about a person's spiritual walk by how they handle their money. Our Lord knows that. He knows that if there's something that would get our attention, it's money and things. He also knows that if there's something that will steal our heart's devotion from pure, undefiled, committed devotion to Christ. It's money, things, stuff. You need to know, letter D, that this topic is really important because it's a matter of our hearts. It's a matter of the heart. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me read that again. For where your treasure is, okay, so you want to know what it is you treasure. You want to know, identify that. What is it that you value? Identify where the things are that you treasure, and that's where your heart's going to be. Your heart follows your treasure. So this is a matter of the heart, and if it's a matter of the heart, it really matters. A study on money and things demands The searching of the heart. So once again, let me remind you this topic and this sermon today as we read the wisdom of Solomon, these pithy axioms, these sayings that were intended to be read and meditated upon and applied to our lives. Don't sit here and think to yourself, I'm so glad my wife is here for this sermon. I'm so glad that guy is here. No, this is to speak to our hearts. This is about me. I need this message, and we all say that. I need this message. It's a matter of the heart. Letter E, it's a matter of choice. It's a matter of choice. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's strong language. And then he concludes this snippet from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. You cannot serve God and money. One of the reasons that God spoke so much about this topic, I think, is he knows that it's his number one competitor. Our devotion to God and our devotion to money, they're not equal. It's a matter of choice. You have, to, you have to choose who it is that you will obey. Which master? Which one are you going to serve? And for many of us, wouldn't we have to admit, money, things, stuff, property, material, it owns us. We don't own it. And we are driven. Finally, I want to point out in letter F that this is a very serious topic this morning and it really matters to us because it is when we are driven by our lusts, this thing of money, stuff, materialism, when driven by our flesh, when driven by the desires of our flesh, our lusts, and when we give ourselves over to that, It can be the cause of devastating life decisions. The Apostle Paul, in instructing young Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, said it this way, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You've been shot up by a crossbow full of darts, You thought you made good decisions. You thought this would be a good idea. You could feel it. You could taste it. It made you salivate. You wanted it. I want it. I want it. I want it. Bacon, bacon, bacon. (laughs) And it did nothing but destroy your life, your home, your marriage, your business. It's what the love, an out-of-balance, inappropriate view, a heart that is not carefully guarded, That's what can happen because of money. I thought it would be good for us. You are perhaps holding your Bible open at Proverbs somewhere. I haven't set a number yet. Would you turn to the right just a few more pages? And let's actually go to the next book. It's called Ecclesiastes. It also was written by Solomon. This is a pretty interesting book. What I want to illustrate here from Solomon's personal testimony that he wrote down for us is that not only is this a serious topic this morning, but money and things can be a very seductive thing in our lives. Very seductive. We can think we're on to something and we're actually heading down the wrong trail. Uh, this book of Ecclesiastes is interesting. It was written, there were, it was written by Solomon. Three books here in the poetical section and wisdom literature were written by Solomon. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, that's the giveaway, and Ecclesiastes. Song of Solomon is probably written in Solomon's younger years. It's a love story. It's about his passionate love for what we assume would be his first wife. He ended up having hundreds You'll recall that Solomon started out well. He had the blessing of God. He was the wisest man that ever lived. God blessed him with wealth. His father was David. He walked in the steps of his father, David. And he started out well, but then he began to marry. And he married hundreds of women. And then he had hundreds of concubines. And and then he began to love wealth. And then he began to worship the false gods of his wives who came in from foreign countries. And he did not end well. He began well, he did not end well. Somewhere along the line in his mature years, it is likely, Bible students believe, probably in his mature years, at a time of perhaps cynicism, kind of emptiness, a time in his life where he realized he had wasted much of his life, He sits down and he writes this book of Ecclesiastes. It's a a weird book. It's, It's a difficult book. It's sometimes difficult to know what in the world he's talking about, almost as though he is not only a cynical, empty, frustrated, unfulfilled man, but almost a confused man as he writes. But we know that he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that God put it in our Bibles for exactly our learning. We're going to jump right into chapter 2, a part of his testimony. We're we're breaking context a little bit, but you'll get it. It's easy to follow here. 
What I want you to see is that no one was ever more qualified than Solomon to talk to us about money and things and stuff and all that that means. Not only was the wisest man that ever lived, the richest man that ever lived, ended up being the biggest fool that ever lived. We can learn a lot from this guy. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, read verse 1 with me. I said in my heart, come now, Solomon says, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Vanity means emptiness. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? You see the cynicism? So then he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. A couple times in this passage, he's going to remind us that I did all of this. I did this great experiment that's unfolding in chapter 2. It's an experiment. It's a test for what can bring meaning to my life under the sun. And he says, I did this while I still had this supernatural spirit of wisdom that God had given me. I knew what I was doing. He's frustrated. He's empty. And so the first thing he says I'm going to do is I'm, going to, I'm just going to try to figure out how to make myself feel better. And letter A on my list, I put the word parties down there. Notice what he says. He says, I, I said of laughter, it's mad. What use is it? I searched into my heart how to cheer my body with wine, verse 3. So he's drinking. He's drinking and he's partying, really, is what he's doing. He's finding a place where there's people that will drink and talk and laugh and carry on. He tries the party scene, and I can only imagine that Solomon must have thrown the biggest parties the world has ever seen. We read on, and he says, I decided at the end of verse 3, he says, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of his life. There's the summary statement of this experiment. I wanted to see what to do in the few days I had in my life of what would bring meaning and joy and pleasure to me. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. Second thing we see is that he had great projects he partied. He had projects. He was given. You know how it is to have a project. Get you fired up. Got a project going. Going to get me some granite countertops. <laughs> Been wanting them granite countertops. Been wanting to take out that teal blue 1974 surround wrap shower and put some ceramic tile in there. And man, we're going to go. And we run down to that big box. It's amazing. Where did Home Depot and Lowe's come from? I mean, everybody's a hairy homeowner contractor. Everybody's got their project. They're watching YouTube, got their project fired up, got to do it. And they're telling you how to do it. You can do it. And to do it, you need this, 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 and this. Come back to our store. That's Solomon, man. He started building projects. You talk about ceramic tile and granite countertops. This guy, in fact, he built and planted and recreated and sculpted to the degree that his hanging gardens and his buildings were one of the seven wonders of the world. People traveled all around, other kings, other queens. The most notable was Queen of Sheba, came in just to observe and see and let their eyes feast on Solomon's projects. There was limitless spending on these projects. We read on... Not only did he make great works for himself, he made gardens and planted them. Verse 6, I made myself pools. Now that's what I've been wanting is a pool. You get a pool, you're going to be happy. You go swimming. Maybe once a week the first summer. Once every two weeks the second summer. I made myself pools from which to water the forest. This guy's pools flow from mountain streams that come down gravity-fed pools. They water the forest of growing trees. And so he had pools, letter C. Not only that, letter D, he had people. I like to have people around, he said. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I, all, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Letter D, he had people. He had people to pick up heavy things. He had people to stand around and, and wave him with palm trees. He had people to feed him grapes. He had people to go saddle his horse. He had people to clean up after the horse. He had people to do whatever he wanted them to do at his command. He said it. They did it. 
limitless, inexhaustible resources he had. He had possessions. Seven, the end of verse 7 tells us, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Nobody had the cattle herds, the flocks, the livestock, the barns, the fields, the productivity. He had possessions, he says. Verse 8, I also gathered for myself, here it is, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Keeping with my P outline, I wrote letter F as piggy banks. He had big piggy banks. He had endless supply of finances. In fact, we know that Solomon storehoused gold. He warehoused gold. I have, I have always been... <laughs> amazed, and I'm kind of this way a little bit. I can relate. I don't like to admit it, but I'm a junk collector. But it is amazing to me that there is an entire industry in our country of building rental storage units. You can't drive a mile in any direction and somebody's got a big storage unit and they're building more. What is we got? So much stuff, we got to lock it in a building behind a fence somewhere, and then we forget what we have. All this junk. And we warehouse, and we store up, and we literally forget what we have. I was reminded this morning, even as I was preaching about the year Janet and I built our house, I went to Wayne and Carolyn, second week in a row, Wayne and Carolyn make the message here today. Went to Wayne and Carolyn's basement. It was immaculate. It was empty. A huge basement. Walk in. And I said to Mr. Wayne, I said, can I just store my household in here while I build my house and we live with my mamaw in Hedgesville? He said, well, yes. He said, yes. He couldn't tell the pastor, no. I'm sure he mumbled to Carolyn after he said yes. But Six to nine months, get my house built. Eighteen months later, my pile of junk in his basement, Mr. Wayne says, hey, PV, can you get your stuff out of my basement maybe? By then, the garage was ready to take stuff, and it's been full ever since here. <laughs> you know what happened that 18 months that our junk was in, our stuff was in Wayne and Carolyn's basement in storage while we built our house? A, I forgot what I had, and B, I didn't even need it. I didn't miss it. That's the way we are. We have all this stuff, and we don't even know what we have, but... We warehouse this stuff, but Solomon warehoused not old furniture from Aunt Wilma. He warehoused piles of gold. He said, I had, I had amassed for myself silver and gold. Do you remember when we introduced this series a few weeks ago out of 2 Kings where it said there in 2 Kings that he had not only had he amassed gold and he covered everything that would stand still. Anything that would stand still, he would plate it with gold. Solomon did. But he also warehoused silver. It said, do you remember what it said? It said, he had so much silver that silver was like gravel during the kingdom of Solomon. That's incredible. Well, you got the picture. He had, he partied, he, he built projects. He had pools, people, possessions, piggy banks. Let's finish it out here. So I became great. Verse 9. Well, let's pick up the end of verse 8. I got singers, both men and women, more people. And many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. He, he became completely given over to fleshly pleasure. So I became great and I surpassed all those who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. You get that? Whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. I walked through the stores and I just, whatever I wanted, I threw in the cart. It was mine. I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then, here he's going to give us kind of his final word, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Is that incredible? 
I did it all. I got it all. I had more money than anybody else. I spent more money than anybody else. And he says, it was a striving after the wind and there was nothing gained from this. I would suggest that we listen to Solomon today. I would suggest that we live in a world today and in a culture where it is easy to buy in to the myth that stuff, that people, possessions, pools, properties, piggy banks can bring happiness and joy to your life. As a result, many of us are pierced through with lots of pangs, Paul said. So it's really serious. It's really seductive, this this desire for money. And Solomon has been there, done it. He leaves a testimony for us. We do not have to experience it ourselves. We can learn by listening to the Word of God today. Boy, most of our problems come from just not receiving the Word of God, isn't it? Thirdly, I want you to see that the answer is really pretty simple. It's really simple. That's kind of the good news here today. In fact, it's so simple, it's laughable. It's so simple, this whole thing of money management, this whole thing of of not causing grief with yourself, with your finances, with stuff, with, with materialism. All you have to do is this. You have to spend less than you earn. There it is. That was worth the price of admission right there, wasn't it? This is not rocket science, people. Here it is. You make 10 bucks, you spend 9 bucks, you're going to get ahead. You make 10 bucks, spend 11, you're going to get behind. Duh. (laughs) So what's our problem? What's our problem? Listen, I would not dare ask us corporately today to indicate those of us who spend more than we make. So we do it all the time. All through the years of ministry, here they come to my office to sit in my chairs, and I reach for my box of Kleenex, and I'm so glad you come. Don't ever bear your burdens alone. Don't not come. The body of Christ is here to minister and to help. And the tears flow. Why? Well, we, we, are, we are credit cards. They're limited out. We don't know what to do. We can't pay our electric bill. And let me figure out what you've done here. You have spent more than you've earned. Yes. Yes. And, and I understand that that's an oversimplistic summary and that in a lot of ways we live in a complicated world. But don't you think that God's people ought to think about this topic of finances a little bit different than the rest of the world? You see, what I want you to see is that the rest of the world has influenced God's people. It's not the other way around. And we have bought into the system of the world. And therefore, we have made so many poor decisions in this area that violate the wisdom principles of Solomon. So let's do this. Let's just take time now and poke around in Proverbs, okay? We're going to poke around in Proverbs here. And we're going to ask ourselves, what's my problem? What is the problem with me that I cannot... Just stop spending. You would think that this is so simplistic, we wouldn't even have to talk about it. Just spend less than you earn. And if it's that simple, what's my problem? Well, problem number one is is that we have a short-term, worldly view of wealth. Proverbs 11, chapter 4. Here we go, studying Proverbs now. Taking in the wisdom of Solomon. What is my problem with finances Well, one of the problems is is that I have a short-term, worldly view of wealth. Uh, You might put next to this instant gratification. I want it, and I want it now. I see in the short view, not the long view. I want it now, and I don't have the resources to get it, so I figure out a way to spend money that I don't have to get something I don't need. Let's look at Proverbs 11.4. He says, Solomon says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. This verse is applicable in a lot of different ways, I'm sure. Not the least of which has to do with the end of our lives, doesn't it? You know the old adage that you don't see a hearse with a U-Haul trailer hooked up behind it? You can't take it with you. We do live in a time where people are really funny about this. 
Um, I, I, I've read articles that in some cities and places that funeral homes offer custom viewing. And so, like, if you're like... Um, um, you and your buddies are known for your Thursday night poker game, Friday night poker games. Instead of coming in and seeing the guy laid out in a casket, they'll have a table there and the cards on the table and the guy in his chair and his little hat, a cigar stuck in his mouth, and there he is with his playing cards. And everybody comes by and says, yeah, that was old Jeb, man. We had a lot of fun. Dude, he's dead. <laughs> and you can prop him up and put a cigar in his mouth, but that ain't living. That's dead. All right, so what are you pretending here? Well, I just kind of want to remember him, how I, how I was the best, you know? And, and it's like, but Solomon says, there's something worth living for that has more to do with the right now, and that's the eternal view. You see, Jesus put it this way. Jesus said, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What good is it? You're going to gain the whole world, and they're still just going to, Put you in the ground. It's over. And you don't take any of it with you. Or maybe you can take a personal check written for 100000 in your casket. Enjoy. And so Solomon says, listen, you need to, to recognize that, that riches do not profit in the day of wrath. At the day when everything really, really matters all of a sudden, it doesn't really matter how much money you have. It matters whether you have a righteousness. You know, our righteousness that we have that saves us is not our righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from Christ. You do understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and you go to the cross, and you admit your sinfulness, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. And we enter his family. That's where we get a righteousness. That's where we get a newness of mind, a newness of heart. So what good is it to gain the whole world but lose your soul? We have the short-term worldly view of wealth, like living in the here and now is what it's all about, but that's not true. Secondly, I want you to see that we value wealth over wisdom. Chapter 16, verse 16. We value wealth over wisdom, and so we make bad decisions, and therefore we spend more than we have. 1616. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, how many of you really believe that? There's a door over there. That's the wisdom and understanding door. There's the door over here. That's the get rich, be a millionaire the rest of your life door. How many of you are going to line up behind this door? How many? Oh, Pastor Van, I'm going to take the wisdom and understanding door. No doubt about it. Yeah, but we're not, are we? We're not. But Solomon said, I've had all the money there is in the world to have. I could shovel it in a grain shovel. And I'm telling you, you're better off to have wisdom and understanding than to have money. There it is. But we don't think that way because the world around us has convinced us that we're missing out on the good life. And so we spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need. You know how the saying goes, to impress people we don't know. Thirdly, Another reason that we're not doing so well in this area, according to Solomon, is that we hold back on giving to God. We hold back on giving to God. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Let's turn there in Proverbs. Chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Take a look. 3, 9 and 10. Look what he says. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. When I hear the word produce, I think of bananas. Can't grow bananas. We can grow tomatoes around here. So I think about tomatoes. So here's how the Christian would live, right? I got tomatoes. Hey, Ma, tomatoes. And your tomatoes are growing. And he says, when God blesses you with tomatoes, you take the first fruit of it and you take it and you give it to him. How do you give something to God? Well, that's kind of interesting. Obviously, you give it to the pastor. That's how it works. Who's closest to God around here? I'm joking. I'm joking. No, you, you give it to Miss Mabel up the street, a precious dear lady who can't grow tomatoes anymore, and you take it down and you say, Mabel, I thought maybe you would enjoy a homegrown tomato sandwich today. And I give this to you in Jesus' name. I don't know what it is that, that you produce, what it is that, that comes out of your productivity and your life of industry, 
but we don't give it away. We keep it. Solomon says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. In other words, the more you give away in honor of God and for God, the more he will give you to give away. And the fact that you haven't given anything away means he hasn't given you anything to give. But you got to watch this point really, really closely. Because our hearts are incredibly deceptive. So I'm already working on a scheme to give my new rifle or my old rifle away so that God will give me a new rifle. I'm going to ratchet it up from a Remington to a Browning. You see, I'm going to give away this old bass boat so that God will provide for me another boat. I don't know when he's going to do it, but he said, if, if I would just give it away, God will bless me. In fact, if I empty out my shed, I'll get a barn. He's going to fill my barn with stuff, see? And that's what TV evangelists do to manipulate. Oh, man, you want to be blessed by God. And all that is, is what? That's just feeding our lust. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who in all humility with the fear of God love God so much that they serve God's people and they take care of their neighbors and they take care of the poor. And God just keeps giving. But God hasn't given us anything because we haven't given anything. That's sort of the principle there. It's a giving principle. Fourthly, we do things without the blessing and wisdom of God. This is the first D, by the way. I have a little nifty alphabet going today. And I have two Ds just to kind of make it flow a little bit better. So D1, we do things without the blessing and wisdom of God. That causes problems. Look at 1022, over to 1022. Take a look. 1022. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. The first D is we do things without the blessing and the wisdom of God. The blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. How many times have we done things outside of the wisdom and blessing of God, and all it has brought is sorrow? I think it's Joe Gibbs in his first, uh, one of his earlier books, telling about his first time uh, as a coach of the Redskins. He started to have some money, and he invested in a, in a housing development or some kind of an investment project, and he lost it all. And he admitted, I didn't pray about it. I didn't ask God for his blessing. I didn't ask God for his wisdom. If I recall as well, he even said, and my wife told me not to. That's part of our problem is we think we know. We think we've got a plan and we don't take time to pray and think about it. It was funny, after the second service, a guy came up to me and he was laughing and he said, he said, Pastor Van, I got this new business going and I'm warehousing this stuff. And he said, I decided I needed a brand new skid loader to work in there, air conditioned with a radio and heat. And it's just because it's a lot of work, what he's doing and moving stuff. And he's got an old skid loader. He said, I was going to buy a brand new skid loader. And my wife said, why don't you pray about it for three days? So I did. And he said, on the third day, my boss came to me and said, don't you do this. And he said, I'm not getting a new skid loader. And he was like, oh. You know, the old skid loader is going to move that stuff just fine. And that's what they make Carhartt coveralls for in the wintertime. When the heat doesn't work on your old skid loader. But see, he, he prayed about it for a few days and he did not make a decision he was going to make. I suspect early on in his business venture that he's doing that it was the wrong time to buy a brand new skid loader. Right? But we, we don't wait for the blessing and the wisdom of God. The second D is that we're too comfortable with debt. That's part of our problem. We're too comfortable with debt. Let's take a look at 22.7. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, as we continue to poke around Proverbs. Look what he says. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is a slave of the lender. And many of us... We are servants and slaves to all the people to whom we owe. And we don't work because we want to. We work because we have to. And we've gotten ourselves in high weeds because we have just bought into the worldly system that it's okay to buy something when I really don't have the money to buy it. 
Hey, you do know that you're being duped on a daily basis, right? You do know that, that there's been a major cultural shift somewhere around World War II. I mean, let's think about that generation. Tom Brokaw called them the greatest generation. It was my dad's generation. He grew up on the, in the farm, on the farm in the north woods of Wisconsin, cutting wood. So if you were old enough to go to war in World War II, you grew up through the Depression. Your parents parented you through the Depression, and that meant that you knew hard times. You knew what it was to have nothing, and so you made do with what you had. Then World War II comes along, and this great country of ours rises up to stand against the evils around the world, and the American industrial machine kicks in high gear to produce for the war, and now we have production lines going, and we're getting it going on, man. We got so much productivity, and we win the war. And all of a sudden, the machines shut off one day when the war's over, and the next day, nobody has a job, and nobody... And so all of a sudden, they figured out, we can produce stuff a whole lot faster than people can use it up. You see, during the war, we were blowing it up, so we had to, buy, we had to build new stuff. But now, we're back to guys like Eugene, who grew up through the Depression, and they're back to cutting wood with their double-bit axe. Do you know how long it takes a double-bit axe to wear out? Oh, you might break the handle, but if you're Eugene, you know what you do? You go find a piece of ash or white oak, and you take it, and you, you cut out a handle, and you work it. And my dad showed me how to take a piece of glass and finish out a handle for a sledgehammer, a homemade handle for a sledgehammer. And you take a piece of glass, and you shave it, and you make it smooth so you don't get blisters. And you make a nice handle for your double-bit axe, and you go back to work. And you never did go buy a new axe. And then you chipped your axe, and, and, it, and it rusted one time, and so... You, it takes a long time to need a double-bit axe. And so the people who cranked out double-bit axes, they said, ain't nobody buying our double-bit axes now that the war's over or whatever it is they produce. They're widgets. So here's what they came up with, right? They came up with a sales department. They came up with a marketing scheme. You know what the marketing scheme was? The marketing scheme was to get a double-bit axe that they painted green with a yellow handle and tell everybody that it's a higher RPM double-bit axe. If you have this green and yellow John Deere-looking double-bit axe, I'm telling you, you're going to get more work done. And so, so oh, Jed's out on the farm, Eugene's cutting his wood, and he's thinking about that really nice green and yellow double-bit axe. And he thinks to himself, I need a new axe. He doesn't really need a new axe. He he just thinks he needs a new axe. And so now, instead of need-based purchasing, what do we have? We have dissatisfaction-based purchasing. We have a whole system designed to convince us that what we have is inadequate. That's why we have granite countertops in our kitchen. They're better. They last forever. They do. You understand what I'm saying? It's, it's incredible. And so now the world presses in on us and it is convincing us that what I have just doesn't look good. Well, this one is bigger, stronger, faster. This one, if you ride in this car, it'll make girls look at you. No, it won't. It doesn't work. They're at least not thinking what you think they're thinking. You see what I mean? And so we are willing to get into debt to buy things to satisfy a desire for things because someone has convinced us that we need it when we don't need it. And our desire and our want, that's what I talk about, the idea, this idea of our lust and our cravings. Letter E, we don't want to work so hard. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Look there quickly, and we're wrapping up shortly now. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard. And consider her ways and be wise. Go to the ant, O slugger. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, and she gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This isn't a problem that everybody has, but many people are lacking productivity in their life because they're just stinking lazy. And you wonder why you don't have? It's because you're not willing to work hard. 
One of the things that is so important for us is to ingrain in our young people a work ethic of productivity. Now, some of you have the opposite problem, and I threw a verse in there for you. There is a warning, a warning to have enough discernment to know when to pull the plug and when to stop working. There are things that are more important than just your work. Vince Lombardi said, the only place that success comes before work is in the dictionary. I thought that was pretty good. Got it off the side of a cup at Mission Barbecue day before yesterday. <laughs> you think I'm not always working on my sermons? <laughs> Letter F, we tend to be stingy, not generous. We've already kind of talked about that on giving to God. Let's take a look, though, at 1124 quickly, and then we will wrap up with our application. Chapter 11, verse 24, look what it says. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And one who waters will himself be watered. I think it's the NIV says, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You go on and look up the rest of those verses on generosity. You do a study of generosity in the Bible, and I want to tell you something. As you learn to give things away and to love your neighbor as yourself and to have a generous spirit about you, you'll be amazed at how God will bless you for that. Again, we don't manipulate. It doesn't come from an insincere heart to feed our own lusts. So what do we take home with this? So we tend to be stingy, not generous, if I didn't say the word there. Number one, wealth is not wrong. Let me make sure that you understand that this message has not been condemning wealth. In fact, there's a number of verses we already looked up, 3, 9, and 10, I believe, up under giving to God, and he talked about filling our barns for us. God owns everything, and God will bless. Often God entrusts people with wealth. It's not wrong to be wealthy. Some of the, some of the greatest people in our Bible, like Job, Abraham, they were very wealthy people. Secondly, some of us need a complete heart change, don't we? Some of us need a complete heart change about money and wealth. You need to take the double-bit axe illustration. Do you know what a double-bit axe is? What, what is it that, that you have in your life that you've become very dissatisfied with? And why? What is it in your heart that makes you dissatisfied with what you have? What is it that would allow you to waste the resources that God has given you? What is it that allows you to be lazy and unproductive? What is it that's going on in your heart? Is it envy? What is it? It leads us to our third point, which is many of our financial issues are really spiritual issues. Have you ever thought about that? Many of our financial issues are really spiritual issues. We make bad financial decisions because we're trying to keep up with people that we just can't resource ourselves like they can. It's okay for somebody to have something you don't have. Maybe it has to do with a lack of contentment. Boy, that's a huge principle in the New Testament. That we become discontent. And when we're discontent, and then we allow ourselves to make poor financial decisions because of our discontent, what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. We're saying, God, what you have provided me with today is, is inadequate. That's a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem to look at God and say, you promised to give me today my daily bread. By 4.30, I was starving, so I slid the card. And God said, if you waited till 5.30, I'd have given you a good meal. But you don't trust him. That's a spiritual problem. How about your identity and your wholeness emotionally? Some kind of a car? It matters what kind of car you drive? I would never be seen in that car. If it gets you from point A to point B, praise God, go, baby. <laughs> Who cares? Why do you have to wear shoes with that thickness of a sole? Or that color? Are you kidding me? Have you ever really looked in your closet and seen how many clothes you have? It's ridiculous. And so, so some of this 
isn't just poor decision making. It's a real spiritual problem in my life that I am trying to bring a satisfaction and a level of wholeness to my life and a completeness to my life that really can only be satisfied in Christ. And it's a spiritual problem. Or it's even an envy problem or a selfishness problem. Finally, learn, I hope you'll take away today, learn the joy of being generous to God and his people. I want so much for Fellowship Bible Church to just be ridiculously generous. And if you're in debt, you can't do that. But I'm telling you, you don't know joy until you learn to give things away. By the way, if you don't give things away, you're not generous. Because if I said, how many of you are generous people? Hands will go up everywhere. How many of you gave something away lately? Well, um, didn't really give much away. If you don't give things away, you don't, you're not generous. And I'm telling you, there is a whole new level of learning to love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about this in months past. This whole concept of how God blesses those who are a blessing. Let's be those kind of people. Amen? So it's simple, people. It's simple. So what's our problem? Our problem is we want instant gratification, short-term worldly view. We value wealth over wisdom. We hold back on giving to God. We do things without, being a, without the blessing and permission and wisdom of God. We're comfortable with debt. We're lazy. We tend to be stingy. That's part of the problem. This is a vast topic. I trust the Lord has used the words of Solomon to stir your heart today. We can do better. We can think more wisely about this. We can be more disciplined. We can find financial stability, which is important, through the principles of God's Word. And let me remind you one more time, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? The most important thing about you isn't what you leave behind or have in your casket with you. It is that your children will be able to stand by your casket and say, we're going to see him in heaven one day. And the most important thing about parents is that they're going to see their children in heaven one day because your faith and trust is in Christ alone for your salvation. That's what really matters. Well, let's stand and close in prayer and be on our way about our day. May the Spirit of God use the Word of God to challenge the hearts of the people of God. Father, we thank you for our lesson today from your Word. We want to be people who obey. We want to be people who are humble and who surrender to the Word. We thank you for our great salvation in Christ and the work that He's doing to reform us and change us redirect us from the old ways. Help us to think biblically. Help us to honor you with our decision-making. Specifically, help us in this area of handling our money. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. By the way,